it's funny, Marcos, like every uh, every week, I feel like one of us is late. <laughs> yeah, for, for me, it's um, after my, my maintenance light turned on, so I took my car to get serviced and oh, no. And it's one of those, I mean, it's no big deal. It's just, I, uh, today was an oil change, so it's no big deal. But uh, it's just one of those uh, things you have to go to a big city or larger city. Um, as much as people want to talk about the virtues of living in a rural community, you know, having an adequate mechanic or whatnot is not necessarily high on the list when people imagine green grass and uh beautiful sunsets so hmm. I mean, that's why you just got to get yourself a horse well you know that's true you know the the average texan has at least three three buggies so oh everybody knows i'm just kidding <laughs> well, hell, hell, north dakota every one of us has a mineral rights contract we're all just raking in the oil money oh right <laughs> well, the only problem is we're in a two-story apartment so we have to share our oil money from the people with the people who live directly below us so it's not that no. good deal. <laughs> well, you know, down here in Alabama, we have football. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there's that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, um, do you guys have a good week? For the most part? Yeah, I mean Thursday. Starting Thursday, you know, just it just feels like the universe has been falling apart. But that's that's due to probably other things. But yeah, it's it's been it, for the first part of the week was been good. I've been able to go to daily mass more often and just uh, trying to live more virtuously, you know. But these past couple of days have been quite the quite the struggle for whatever reason. Sounds like more motivation to go to daily mass. Right. <laughs> um, let's see. So my part, I, I, I completed and survived my COVID vaccination. Congratulations. So I, oh. I got that shot actually just a few hours before we did our last episode. Oh, okay. But not too long after that episode, I'm feeling just totally wiped out and feverish, and I can't see things beyond 10 feet. And uh, the next day, I am fever dreaming all day. Oh, no. It's fun. That was that was a blast. Let me tell you, I, I love my fever dreams. It's always so creative. <laughs> One time in college, I had the sinus infection when my fever was so bad, I, I, I was half convinced that I was Zoroaster. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Other than that, the fun thing going on in my life is... I'm working on the process of a job in federal service, but because it's a government job, the process is taking forever. And today I had to send an email to a guy saying, okay, you told me if this took two weeks, tell you. So I'm telling you. Oh my gosh. And when I say federal service, I don't mean like something super important with a you know security clearance i'm literally going to be working in the back of a postal facility so uh you know i, I don't know why they need to have the contact information for half the people i've ever known in my life but again federal government land of wonders 
Hey. Yeah. Well, I I hope that everything works out there. Over here, I've just been fighting to to get my 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 spreadsheets done. I was knee deep in spreadsheets all day to the point where you guys, for the listeners, they don't know this, but I have a chair that's so common that it's it's like being cradled by my mom as a baby. <laughs> so I took a couple hours nap as I was kind of coming off of that spreadsheet high. Um, I yeah, had uh, those of us who do tabletop gaming with Eddie know all about the chair. Sometimes <laughs> <laughs> he misses half the session. Uh, if you if you ever just see me disappear from the Zoom call, <laughs> that's usually what's happened. Um, so, guys. You know, we, we kind of left off last week with um, what we termed as sacramentally speaking. Um, and we, we, we talked about a few of the, the sacraments last week. And did you guys want to kind of just go over those again so we can kind of lead into the the last three? Does that sound good to y'all? Well, someone wants to do summarizing. I hate mm-hmm. that. So, I mean, we obviously we talked about um, baptism which is um, one of the first sacraments that we receive as, as Catholics. In fact, it is typically almost always going to be the first sacrament that we receive. Mm-hmm. Um, from there, there's usually um, first confession, unless you're in the Eastern Church, we do confirmation next. And um, those two things, of course, give us um, our chance to reconcile with God and and then, of course, with confirmation, we receive what would be known as the completion of baptism. Um, and then, of course, uh, we discussed, what was the last thing that we discussed, guys? I'm, I'm blanking. It was, uh, it was anointing of the sick. Anointing of the sick, yeah. Yep. So um, I think we had decided that we want to go ahead and talk about holy orders next, if I remember right. Yes. Yes. So... What are holy orders? That's one of the big questions I think that we get. Um, because when I thought, when I, I was growing up, I thought a holy order was something like the Knights Templar or the Benedictine monks. Um, obviously, the Knights Templar were a little bit of a different order. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the, the Benedictines, the Franciscans, uh, the Carolinians, if I remember correctly, were a few of the ones that I knew about. Um, but of course, not being raised Catholic, I thought that you were talking about literally like orders of people, uh, nuns, monks, things like that. So, I mean, do one of you have, either one of you have maybe just like a short definition of what holy orders can be? Well, I guess the short version is we believe that uh, our Lord Jesus Christ instituted actual spiritual authority holding offices and the authority of those positions is carried on by the laying on of hands which if you've read your new testament you know laying on of hands is a big thing and it does that and it does lots of other things too i think we we already discussed two other kinds of laying on of hands well now we're doing number three Mm -hmm. Mm I know that in the in the catechism, it's in part two, the celebration of the Christian mystery. It talks about the seven sacraments. Um, and then article six of that portion talks about the sacrament of holy orders. And it, it says that God in the old covenant had chosen 
a group of priests and that basically this this these holy orders are given as a continuation of that in essence that again for those who want to take the route of silva scriptura show me where where in the bible where it talks about a man needing to be a priest in the church now why don't we just have pastors well i mean it's very 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 plain that in this case god chose out of the old testament very specifically the levites to be the priesthood and those people were set apart in fact they weren't even given necessarily large tracts of land but just a couple of cities and their sole purpose was to serve the lord in the temple which from my understanding of a catholic priest specifically that's exactly what they do mm-hmm. they serve at the lord's table um of course with within those holy orders we have things like of course sisters we have nuns we have monks and brothers those of course are different things um we have priests and uh deacons as well um you can throw in their acolytes and subdeacons bishops archbishops cardinals and of course the pope um although in terms of orders the funny thing is uh, the Pope doesn't receive orders any greater than that of any bishop. A lot of, a lot of people uh, miss that, that when it comes down to sacramental orders in terms of the actual ecclesiastical hierarchy, you've got the orders for deacons, orders for priests, orders for bishops, and everything else is kind of elaboration within that if you're within the ecclesiastical hierarchy. Um, I noticed that there's also three separate degrees of those, and guys, please forgive me if I mispronounce these. Um, the episcopate, the presbyterate, and the diaconate. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, the first being the level of a bishop, which is what you were talking about right there, James. The second is going to be talking about the level of a priest, or as we had talked, um, we were talking about this last night, actually. Um, like our word for priest comes from presbyter originally. And then, of course, the diaconate would be the, the, the deacon um, of the church. Um, but it's it's a pretty cut and dry thing, I think, with holy orders, that it, it's it's really mostly about the apostolic succession. Right, and, and the authority that's invested through that succession. Yeah, that's really the key difference when it comes to the question of ordination uh, between us and a lot of Protestant churches, because lots of Protestant churches practice an ordination, but the ordination typically is kind of a formality to give you a status from men that you know your religious community perhaps or some school says okay you are cleared to practice this as a profession whereas in the catholic church we believe there's an actual spiritual enrobing with some sort of authority that in some way does set you apart from the rest of the faithful and we can actually draw a direct line back to jesus from that as well um, yeah, yeah meaning, because that can't come from anywhere else. I mean, exactly. I mean, when we talked about the um, the other episode, when it talks to talking about absol- absolving people of sin, well, where else can that authority come from but from you know Christ? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There is there is somewhat of a spiritual family tree 
though, that every priest carries because a priest was ordained by a bishop who was ordained by another bishop who was ordained by another bishop going all the way back to St. Peter or even back to Saint, to, to Jesus himself. Um, I think I mentioned this once before that my particular home archdiocese in Mobile, um, we have a direct lineage with St. John the Apostle because one of John's disciples went to France and began a church there. And from that particular church grew out um, a diocese. And then they sent uh, priests from that diocese over to the New World. And lo and behold, we have the Archdiocese of Mobile. Mm-hmm. Um, so quite literally, my home, my home church that I was, I was uh, confirmed in at St. Pius X has a direct line all the way back to St. John the Apostle, which I thought was amazing. You know, you don't really have that with First Baptist Church of, of whatever town you're in. Um, I know we haven't really gotten into too much the concept of the magisterium, but there's something to be said that, you know, our priests and our deacons and our bishops have a, a, a definitive spiritual heritage that your typical Protestant churches don't. And I, and I don't want to pick, but I know that I experienced a couple of church splits whenever I was, I was a Protestant. And the thing is, is that it's usually because one person, his or her ego got too big. And they wanted to have more attention placed on them. Um, when we split, it's not over, typically over ego, but over major doctrinal differences. Um, if there is ego involved, as a lot of people would argue with um, some of the splits with the Eastern Orthodox, you're not seeing a split between here's a community that has the tradition of the faith and here's some random guy running off with essentially a cult he started. You're talking about still structured communities that hold to the same basic faith even when it's a matter of human beings being prideful and uh, rejecting each other in some way. Yeah. Um, now, I know at one point, Marcos, is, is it true that, I, I think you had mentioned this once in our conversations, that, that you had been considering or discerning to become uh, someone in the religious life. Isn't that true? Yeah, it is. Po- yes, it is true. It's, it's still one of the possibilities, yes. Can you talk a little bit to that, like what you know, what it is that that you you see in that specifically? So for me, uh, you know, if, if I were to take the possibility of uh, the religious life, um, for me, I would like to become a what well, what is right to be to be what we would call you know uh, the father or the reverend, the pastor, that kind of thing. Uh, now. When it comes to discerning holy orders or discerning your path in the religious life, you can do so to be more of like the mainstream, which is your diaconate priests, not diaconate priests, you like your deacons or the uh, diocesan priests. So those are the ones that that uh, are going to be the pastors for uh, large communities and the you know the cities and the areas uh, out in the basically pretty much still in the world kind of thing. And then you have the cloistered life, where you would um, basically enroll into uh you know a monastery and if if, you, if it was a a woman discerning to go into the religious life she would enter a convent 
Um, so there's uh, a lot of things that go into play. Uh, most importantly, you have to understand what are the sacrifices that you're going to be giving up for entering uh, the priesthood. So of course, in the Latin rite, you, uh, we have the, um, to this day, we still have a firm commitment to uh, celibacy as a, as an obligation for the, for the priesthood in the Latin rite. Of course, in the Eastern rite churches, there's uh, some leeway there. Um, I don't know if, can, can uh, uh, I don't know if anyone's, uh, Eddie, in, in the Maronite, could uh, priests be married? They can. Um, my understanding of it is that the priest must be married before he takes his, his, his vows mm -hmm. um, and receives his orders. Um, and there's, there's other requirements to go into that. Mm -hmm. Also, of course, if you're a Greek Orthodox priest, you can come in if you're married there. Right. And but I think in, also Anglican and Episcopalian as well. Right. And some Methodists as well. Like you, mm -hmm. you'll find Methodists because really the liturgical churches more so, um, what we would call high church Protestants, mm -hmm. um, Methodists, Presbyterians in some cases, uh, Anglicans, um, Episcopalians, like you mentioned before, definitely were, were able to. Um, and in fact, in Mobile, we had several that were married. Um, I have a, a couple good friends that are. Um, yeah. The priest we had when I was in college in Hillsdale, Michigan, at St. Anthony's, um, for at least the last three years I was there, he had come in from the Church of England, and so we had a married Catholic priest there. And that was always great because that was a school that attracted a lot of people who were fundamentalist or you know, the more evangelical sorts of Protestants, and they come in, and they've never met a Catholic before sometimes. <laughs> come to this community where the Catholic priest that everybody loves, because he was such a great guy and a wonderful homilist, um, he's married and he's walking around with his family and his kids. And they're like, wait, I thought that wasn't allowed. Well, it, you know, it's, it's a policy matter. A lot of people get that confused. They think it's like a Catholic doctrine mm -hmm. can't be married and a priest. You know, it, it's a discipline that we adopted and can make exceptions to. Exactly. And um, some other things that are expected for people discerning the priesthood, of course, you know, you definitely have to live up to the expectations of a priest. There's a lot of people that go into the priesthood just because they sense they can't find a wife or something like that. And so they, they, they feel like they're settling for priesthood, which is which should not be the case whatsoever. If you have the calling, you, you follow the call of the Lord. You know, you don't just second guess Things because there's been instances where where priests will break their vows and there are specific vows that go into the priesthood. Um, I think lately they've been relaxing and I'm, they're probably going to change this. But um, in our diocese, they've they've been very lax on the vow of poverty. So sometimes you see some uh, priests that want to live like T.D. Jakes or you know those prosperity gospel. Uh, preachers but every now and then the the lord comes knocking and and they you know they get your retribution but uh you also have of course a vow of chastity so that goes into the idea of celibacy there and then you also have um you know you have you have some, a few other requirements that go along but uh for the most part though uh, when you're going to trying to discern it's also not going to be for a lot of people they just think that they feel the calling to become a priest and sometimes people have the goodwill to want to become a priest and 
they don't necessarily have the, I guess you could say, the academic ability to complete their studies, because usually a seminarian, I don't know how it is now, but uh, for example, uh, one of my uncles w went to go study uh, for the uh, priesthood and a seminary. And of course, when he was studying, it was in a very tumultuous time, which was the 1960s. And so he had entered the seminary at the opening of Vatican II. And then he was, and he, he decided to leave. Uh, he at least got his uh, bachelor's in political science, I think, but he decided to leave because there was too much chaos compared to what they were learning at, in the start of the, the courses and what they wanted to, you know, kind of impose with their, a lot of people thought there were revisions in, in Vatican II, but really it was just more of like a, um, kind of like a uh, recasting of the church into, um, I guess, say more modern, modern terms, but. I usually think of it as trying to reframe the same right. thing. In a, in a way that's perhaps better adapted to yeah. dealing with evangelizing the modern world. Now, how well was that done? That's debatable. Yes. But, yeah, people going around saying that the, the faith was turned on a dime and everything's different. No. Right. No, no. Right. Yeah. You When you read the actual documents and you actually, you know, go put up, do away with the pundits both on the left and the right, because that was one of the problems the, the Vatican... The Second Vatican Council was very much uh, uh, politicized, and and it was I think the very it, it was the main the first council that was uh, in the, within the realms of what we would call mainstream media, because we had television at the time, we also had radio and and you know broadcasts, so international broadcasts. So it wasn't like the first Vatican Council where the only people that knew what was going on were the bishops and the cardinals and the pope that were present. So it was it was a uh, it was an interesting time, but uh, there are merits to both to both sides. Right. You're right. Like, I, I know for the Eastern, the Eastern Church, um, it helped us tremendously. Mm -hmm. um, it gave us back a lot of our our history and a lot of our tradition, which is a wonderful thing. Um, in the Latin Church, there's there's plenty of of things that that you can you can say either way. Oh, of course, um, yeah. but. The beautiful thing about it is, is that Jesus is still served, Amen. Through that, mm -hmm. and that's what's important. And you know, that's a, that's something that we're definitely going to have to talk about down the road. Oh yeah. Um, and it's that's going to be a multi-part episode because there's a lot to unpack there. Yes. Um, I've heard some some really great things on both sides. Mm -hmm. Um, and in some ways, it's it's kind of as as if the church is trying to write their uh, their direction because at times we become too scrupulous with our our faith oh, of Catholic. course right and in, and uh, yeah oh sorry i was just gonna say if if anyone's interested in in reading how the documents and how vatican ii maintains continuity with everything from the past there's an amazing uh, Vatican II Renewal Within Tradition by Matthew Lamb and Matthew Levin. They composed some essays by many of the great theologians that have gone line by line pretty much of the, a lot of the documents and tried to do their best to to show the line of continuity and that a lot of the distortions that a lot of people impose upon Vatican II are really just that. They're just they're trying to force a certain bias or a certain premise uh, uh, onto onto uh, what happened in the nineteen in the nineteen sixties, um, but I just want to go real quick. Uh, so when we can talk about holy orders, right? Some people, if they can't live up to be a priest, 
uh, you are always welcome to, of course, people can be deacons. And then there's also another term, and this is mostly for people in religious communities, such as, um, like, for example, like Benedictine monks, uh, Carmelite nuns, that kind of thing. You can become like a brother or a sister, right? And so there's, there's all sorts of that. But uh, just real quick, that the way I have framed it, like, if I was going to be, enter the priesthood, I would feel my uh, obligation to follow what, what the Lord Jesus has taught us. Um, so in, in uh, John 17, chapter 17 says, even as thou hast sent me, and this is what he's saying in, during his passion, uh, even as thou hast sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world, yet not for these only do I pray, but for those who through the word are to believe me. Now, the priest is like the apostles are going to be giving up things of the world and to dedicate his life entirely to God and his service and wishing only the Lord for his portion. Okay. And then, so uh, that's, that's one of the uh, ideas. Uh, the deacon, you will see that receives the power of worthily assisting the priest and the bishop and of, of preaching the gospel. The priest, of course, is able to institute the sacrament of reconciliation right receives the power of forgiving sin and offering the holy sacrifice of the mass he is also made a now this is a term a lot of people get get caught up on and we're going to definitely talk about this too uh later today but the idea of persona christi right made in, made as a living representative of the redeemer whose work he continues and of course if a priest is able to advance further to become a bishop the bishop receives the power of confirming and ordaining as well as the other sacraments that the priest was able to accomplish. And he's also given the plenitude of the priesthood and has made a successor of the apostles. So um, that's that's how you could see it kind of like as a, not necessarily like a core matter, but that's just the, the, the progression that some people may choose to follow. There's something that needs to be said there too, um, especially in today's culture. Um, there's a lot of questions about women specifically and their role in the religious life. Um, there's a couple ways that you can look at this. One, you can look at the very legal term as in, as in canon law. The church does not have the authority to ordain female priests. Um, it's not that they don't want to, it's not that they, um, that they choose not to but rather they were never given the authority to do so by tradition or scripture. Mm -hmm. We have no female priests. That's, that's why we don't have female priests. Is it possible for a woman to be a female deacon? Yes, it is. It, there is some historical and scriptural significance that has been found to show that that's happened. But when it comes down to it, that's why. And I mean, to a certain degree, it's understandable. And this leads into my second reasoning for it. We call a priest father for a reason. He's the father of that parish. For guys like me who lost their dad when they were three, my priest is like my second dad. I, I go to him and I ask him questions. I check in with him just like I would check in with, with my dad in, in some cases. Mm -hmm. um, and in, in a healthy parish and in a healthy Catholic church, we also have sisters and mother superiors that are there. Mm -hmm that act as the mothers of the church, of the parish. And they, they help fill a role for those of us personally that, that don't have those things. Like, again, my mom died when I was 25, and um, 
one of the things that brought me into the church were some really wonderful nuns that that for some reason would always remember my name and always cared about me and always asked me how I was doing. Mm-hmm. And I know some people didn't have the same experience, but um, working at a pizza, a pizzeria back home in Pensacola, Florida, um, a couple nuns come in two, three times a week and they specifically would stop and talk to me and they would remember what I told them and they would pray for me. And having just that was enough to start my path you know, to the church. So here I am, good Lord, 21 years later, and you know I'm 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 a full-blown Catholic, and that to me is just a, it's a beautiful thing. Mm-hmm. So um, there's plenty of roles for women in in, in ministry. Uh, just that one role of being the priest isn't there. Right. So with your explanation, I bet there are probably a couple people hearing that going, "Wait, you're talking about spiritual fatherhood, but." Is that really biblical? Didn't Jesus say, call no man father? You hear that one all the time as right. to uh, Catholic priests being addressed as father. Now, on a surf- surface level, you could just point out that if you look at the other titles he refers to, if you take him, if you take our Lord too literally, you're going to get yourself in all kinds of trouble. Um, like your biological dad or an adoptive dad, if you're adopted, you know, what do you call him? Well, if you call him father by your interpretation, you're violating Jesus's words. That doesn't make sense. He says things like master or teacher, rabbi. Um, I have bad news. If you went to college and you address someone as professor or doctor, by that interpretation, you violated that. And anytime you call someone mister, by that interpretation, you violated it because that's a form of master. Um, so we shouldn't take those words that literally. Otherwise, it just doesn't make sense. But let's look where you you actually talk about fatherhood in the Bible. Uh, Throughout the New Testament and the Old Testament, spiritual fatherhood is a thing among human beings. Um, Especially the most beautiful demonstration of this is between St. Paul and Timothy. St. Paul very clearly all over the place portrays himself as the spiritual father of Timothy. And for us, if you have a pastor who, you know, pastor means shepherd. If you have a shepherd for your congregation, then yeah, the biblical model is for him to be a spiritual father to the people who are gathered there in the assembly of the Lord. Um, But beyond that, people might wonder, well, this entire system of orders, is that really biblical? I mean, it sounds like a great system we've had, or maybe you think it sounds like a terrible system either way, but is it really biblical? And the answer to that is uh, yes. Yes, very much. And this this goes deep into the Old Testament. Uh, If you look at uh, the formation of the Old Covenant, you see the laying on of hands to pass on authority. Uh, It's most explicit between Moses and Joshua. If you look, I believe it's Numbers, you have uh, the Lord said unto Moses. So this isn't something Moses made up. This was a divine command. Take thee, Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is spirit, and lay thy hand upon him. Okay, and then in Deuteronomy, there's a follow-up for that. And Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom. Why? For Moses had laid his hands upon him. So all the way back in the Pentateuch, the very foundation 
of the Old Testament, you have this idea of the one who is imbued with power from God lays his hand upon someone to pass it on, and it works. Like in Deuteronomy, that is a causal relationship. Moses laid hands, therefore Joshua had power. <laughs> then people might say, well, that's the Old Covenant. In the New Testament, we're all priests. And in some sense, that's true. And with another sacrament we're talking about today, we'll, get it, we'll be getting into how that actually is true. But does that mean that Jesus did not establish a ministerial priesthood? Well, you know, let's look at the apostles. After Jesus had ascended into heaven, do the apostles lay hands upon people to pass on spiritual authority? Well, right off the bat, what's one of the first things the apostles do? Uh, they ordain a new apostle to take the place of Judas. Well, that's an interesting act if we're not supposed to have people filling these offices in a line of apostolic succession. Um, then you have ones where they explicitly talk about laying on hands. For example, when they're forming the deacons, and we were just talking about the role of the deacons, well, that's a biblical role. And in the Acts of the Apostles, how do you make a deacon? You lay hands upon them. So this is Acts 6. Um, so they, they pick out a number of men to be deacons. And then chapter, uh, verse 6 of chapter 6, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid their hands on them. So, boom, right there. When you get into other things, uh, you, you get later into the book of Acts, you have a couple other examples of ordaining and sometimes explicitly laying on hands. Um, let's see, Barnabas and Saul in chapter 13. Uh, verse 3, when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. So they had hands laid upon them before they were sent away on mission. Uh, and then you go into, again, that relationship between Paul and Timothy. There's a lot of talk about laying on hands. Uh, Paul tells Timothy, neglect not the gift that is in thee, which was given thee by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the presbytery. This is the King James Version. This isn't some kooky Catholic translation. So you know, Paul thinks that Timothy has some special spiritual authority that he got by the laying on of hands. And then he warns Timothy elsewhere, lay not hands upon any man lightly. Why? Because it does something. And you don't do it on just anybody. So it's biblical. We didn't just make this up. <clears throat> even even going a little bit further, if you want to take it into the concept of apostolic succession mm -hmm. or apostolic authority, um, you can go into Acts chapter 15, where we see the very first ecumenical council, the Council of Jerusalem, um, where there was a disagreement between Paul, Barnabas, um, and uh, Peter. So everybody went before the, mm -hmm. the three big guys, Peter, James, Peter, James, and John, and and they came up with pretty much the first dogmatic statement um, when we're talking about um, the concept of circumcision versus uncircumcision, um, which is a, is, a, is a major part of what Paul ended up teaching throughout the New Testament, um, which, of course, we talked about that last week with baptism as well, how that, that baptism, in essence, took the spiritual place of, of circumcision. Um, so 
even there we see where bishops had been established or as we say in the eastern church in this case it would have been a patriarch um we, we of course because you have the patriarch of jerusalem the patriarch of antioch and the patriarch of rome eventually mm-hmm. um so you see a lot of that you see a lot of these things but again when you're looking at things from an outside perspective from the church i can understand of all people i can understand why you would think well no the bible doesn't support a priesthood because it does say things like you are a royal priesthood and a holy nation and 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 these different things but they forget that jesus also gave authority very specifically to his apostles yeah all throughout the new testament there is a select group within the community of which have some some special authority now maybe you don't want to call it a priesthood maybe you want to call it something else okay fine you know the the biblical term seems to be presbyter from which granted we get the term priest but that's getting caught up on semantics the point is that there is some sort of spiritual authority being wielded among the early church and furthermore you look at the teachings of jesus clearly this was his intention and his uh what what our lord anticipated for the church uh, because if you look in the gospels all the time jesus is warning us about spiritual leaders that violate that trust mm-hmm. i know people will go through the gospels and say look at all these parts where jesus is talking about the hypocrisy of religious authorities Therefore, we shouldn't have a religious authorities. It's like, whoa, 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 whoa. If we're not supposed to have religious authorities, whose hypocrisy are we supposed to be on alert for? Right. And some of them, it's very clear that the idea is that they do have authority, and that authority is supposed to be exercised well. In particular, I remember uh, Luke 12. I don't have it in front of me, uh, but Jesus describes uh, placing a steward in the master's house to uh, give them their portion of bread. And you know whoever fails to do this will be horribly punished. Whoever does this successfully will be rewarded. Well, he's, he's talking about placing people in charge over the church who will actually have authority. Mm-hmm. And then, you know what? Yeah, some of them are going to do it wrong and they will be judged. Um, and for bonus points, uh, when he tells this, if I recall correctly, he's like specifically addressing Peter. So it's almost like this is um, not only for all ministers of the church, but even specifically pointed at the popes, that you're going to have authority to do these things. And I want you to have the authority to do these things. But if you screw it up, there's going to be a reckoning. There's <laughs> <laughs> going to be a reckoning if that thing exists. If right. Jesus did not mean to exist there can't be that reckoning because we are what what trust have you betrayed if there isn't a trust in the first place and i think that goes along you know with the idea that with the apostolic succession at no point is it that the um so as catholics of course we affirm that we are the one true church and and those who have broken away whether we can say it um from uh, apostatizing or uh, schism, that kind of thing, is that the church continues to remain regardless because Christ told us 
you know, that the gates of hell, not even the gates of hell will prevail against us. You know, that, that's the idea. And there's a lot of people that will try to say that when, when Christ says something, it has to be qualified. But I, I, in my, and I think, you know, of course, this is the teaching of the church, you know, at no point has apostolic succession been terminated. Yeah, I mean, that comes down to, do you believe that Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, who came to die to atone for our sins and rise from the dead, he goes through the trouble of all this stuff, and then he's going to send out his people as a church, and then he's just going to kind of hand off the wheel, let it go astray. Um, not the way a lot of people seem to think it has. And that's the problem I have with a lot of churches out there is their foundational premise is, yeah, Jesus sent people out into the world, but he didn't bother to keep them from going rogue. Right. Which, I don't know, Jesus said some pretty specific things about being with us until the end of the age. And exactly. And spirit to remind us of all that he has taught us. Because um, after all, what, what what's the number one responsibility of these offices of authority it's to preach the gospel is to teach the truth mm -hmm. and not some truth that we made up but you know the faith delivered once unto the saints by jesus christ through the apostles and all that so that's the logic behind that right i think it's pretty straightforward to be quite honest with you these are you know this is, was established by jesus like he throughout scripture sent them out two by two he said you guys go off and do this if people accept you let them take you into their home but if they turn you away dust the, the dust off your your shoes and and go um he said at the end before he he ascended to heaven he's like you know go into all the world preaching the gospel making disciples of every man baptizing them in the name of the father the son and the holy spirit and like you said, he said, lo, I'm with you until the end of the age. He very specifically commanded this to yes. those people. And that's where, that's where we get the establishment of these offices, because these are the ones that did. They laid hands on people where they received the Holy Spirit. They baptized these people. They offered the Eucharist. They were, in all aspects, priests. Yes. So, and later, later on, of course, you had you had the establishment of um, people who lived the aesthetic life. Mm -hmm. um, you have the the Desert Fathers. You have guys like Saint Andrew of the, or is it Saint Anthony of the Desert? Right. Saint Anthony of the Desert and the Saint Benedict. Saint Benedict, and and of course you have, in it the. In my mind, you know, the with the establishment of monasteries is to try to help provide a not a safe safe space. I don't want to use that word, but the idea is to cultivate a, a center for virtue and of course uh, spiritual living. Because of course we all know living in this world, especially in the world that we're in right now, you know, we're bombarded and uh, by all sorts of all sorts of things that a lot of times it's not even asked for, right? We're just Everything just is just uh, it's almost like overstimulation, right? And a lot of people want to step back and and to to reset or or just refocus themselves. And a lot of times, you know, you have these communities springing up to 
break away from what they see as the evils of the world. You have entire rites that were birthed out of monasticism, like the Maronite rite. Mm -hmm. um, even today, our priests, when they're in full, um, full vestments, they wear the hood of a monk on as well. Um, when our archbishop comes into town, that's how he walks in, is with his hood on. Um, Saint uh, Saint Maroon, actually, you know, he was a friend of uh, Saint John Chrysostom. Um, they were contemporaries of each other, and he went off and became a monk, and then he created this society that then birthed the rite that I'm in now. Um, and and in monastic. And I think that, that, that kind of changes the flavor of the liturgy a little bit for us. Mm -hmm. It tends to be a bit more solemn at times. And when my friends that are, are Latin right come to visit for church, they comment on how that it tends to be a bit more, not necessarily reverent, but there's, there's a certain weightiness that comes with it. That's yeah. a little bit different than what you're going to have in, in the, the Latin rite. And that's not to say that it's it's better than one or the other, but it's just a little bit different. And it really, what I see is it reflects the monastic life um, more so. Because again, that life is very much so centered on becoming holy and living out holiness and to eliminate the sinful um, influences of the world. Mm-hmm. So I personally, um, the monastic life really called to me for a very long time. I think it's a, a beautiful, beautiful tradition. Um, I believe it's something that we don't have enough of anymore. Mm -hmm. So definitely, if you're, if you're discerning a vocation, as we would say in the church, you know, and if you don't necessarily feel led to being a diocesan priest, mm -hmm. the monastic life is a beautiful way to go. Most definitely. Uh, and, you know, the thing is, a lot of times people, when you say monk or brother, that kind of thing, they think that you're going to be in some kind of like spooky Gothic style monastery locked up for the rest of your life with no outside contact. And in some instances, that could be true. Uh, so, and if you're not locked in for out of your, you know, out of compulsion, this is your own free will of trying to devote your life to a life of prayer and uh, fasting and, and to grow in holiness and, and a lot of times, a lot of people don't see, they want to see and measure everything in terms of, a, of, of utility. And so they, a lot of times they, they see a monastery as being a waste of resources because these people are not actually doing anything. They just sit in their cells. You know, people contribute char charitable funds to uh, keep them going. And then off, and here they are just, you know, reaping the rewards of, of other people's charity. But that's not, that's not the, the premise at all a lot of different types of uh, uh, orders. So you can have the very strict orders. So some examples would be like the Trappists, uh, the Carthusians, uh, those would be, and of course the, like the Discalced Carmelites, those would be, uh, you would say your no, strictest I, orders. If, if I can, if I can cut in here, I think monasticism as a topic is probably something its own episode. Oh, of course. We're going to talk about that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's true. It, so it is something that 
Um, honestly, it's probably quite foreign to the average Protestant's uh, spiritual right. experience. Right. But we, we probably should be moving on now to marriage. Yeah. We, we, that's fine. We, we spend a lot more time on order than we thought we would. Okay. It's it's so easy to fall into those holes, guys. Like where you're where you're talking about these things, especially I think for Marcus and I both, because um, we both have kind of a, a pull towards that side. I think yeah. that's where that comes I, from. I just want to say for for the last point is that on the flip side, you can have you can totally be a priest, doing your best to live out the virtues in the world. You don't have to go full on ascetic living, being a hermit, living out in the wilderness, praising God. Okay, you you don't have to do that. You can you know there are orders such as the Marianists and a few others that are trying to do their best to incorporate and and live in the world in in in. To, to restore, basically, as as St. Paul says, to restore all things in Christ. And by golly, do we need that, especially in our era of social media and, and Instagram and Facebook and so on. Absolutely. So moving on to the flip side of the coin, to the not-so-celibate route of vocations, <laughs> and get into marriage. Which, you know, again, like we talked about this last week, there are there are really two main ordinances that Protestants talk about that's going to be baptism and communion. Um, but the concept of a sacramental marriage, I think, is lost on a lot of people. Well, I think a lot of people, they kind of have a halfway concept. In my experience, the average uh, Protestant Christian understands that something spiritual happens in marriage but they may not appreciate the full depth of it and why, especially us Catholics, why we take it um, so much further than anybody else does. I think in particular, probably the most common argument we have isn't so much whether marriage is a sacrament, but the argument over the implication of its indissolubility. Mm -hmm. Um, because if marriage is something that like really fundamentally changes you at some deep level, then that becomes something you can't just sever. Right. And so uh, another thing too is that in the Catholic Church, if you can hear me, I might sound okay. You are to us. We'll, we'll see how it picks up on okay. the final version. Okay. So, um, you know, it, it for us Catholics, we don't say that marriage occurs as a pro as a sacrament that is imparted by the priest. The sacrament is actually carried out by the couple to be married. Yeah, which is an interesting quirk and also why I'm not at all bothered when someone who knows just enough about history to be annoying tells me, well, you know, the earliest Christians best we can tell, they had uh, regular social marriages. They didn't have weddings in church. It's like, well, yeah, okay, fine, because it's not about the priest. Now, granted, church laws have since moved us towards, you should really do this in a church so we as a community can witness and bless it. Right. Um, you know, a couple of baptized people who are getting married with a full Christian intention uh, it doesn't have to be in a church for it to really be a sacrament and, you know, really match the biblical model. Speaking of which, what's the biblical model? Is that where the uh, man is a tyrant who just barks orders at his wife and then beats her? Or 
Because I've been told that's what St. Paul talks about in uh, Ephesians 5 and such. <laughs> no, that's that's absolutely not true. Um, sure. there's a, I'm, I'm going to have to have a mulligan on my last four years of marriage then. But <laughs> my wife is right here, and she can tell you I, I've been living like that meme is true. I know better. Um, James is definitely kidding, guys. <laughs> Ladies, he is not the tyrant. Um, going, going into marriage is, it's, it's difficult. Um, in today's society specifically, we're taught through our own parents, through media, through social media, Mm -hmm. that it's okay, number one, to sleep around. It's okay to, to test the waters before you, you buy the boat, quote unquote. Um, right that's not biblical that's that's not scriptural and that's not that's not based off tradition any of those things that is not what a good marriage the opposite because the model you hear out in the world is you need to drain the other for your own sake when the biblical model is you pour yourself out in service this isn't a consumptive contract this is a covenant of outpouring of love exactly um, going to the Catechism, um, Article 7 of Chapter 3, under the Sacraments of the Service of Communion, um, the Sacrament of Matrimony in Article 7, Paragraph 1617 says, The entire Christian life bears the mark of the spousal love of Christ in the Church. Already baptism, the entry into the people of God, is a nuptial mystery. It is, so to speak, the nuptial bath which precedes the wedding feast the Eucharist. Christian marriage in its turn becomes an efficacious sign, the sacrament of the covenant of Christ and the church. Since it signifies and communicates grace, marriage between baptized persons is a true sacrament of the new covenant. And our marriages are to, in essence, mirror the relationship of Christ and his church. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's think about our relationship with Jesus. We're called to be chaste individuals. You know, that's why it's important to keep keep yourself clean in essence before marriage. Now, of course, if, if people have gone and they've they've sinned prior hand, there's there's plenty of God's grace out there. But understand that that in in a perfect world, we'd all be virgins when we got married. Right. Um but that's not always true. But what is important is to remain chaste until you are married. That way that your relationship becomes that more beautiful. Because this this modern idea of of you know having your cake and eating it too is not what we should be doing. It's cheapening that bond between a husband and a wife. Um we have we have Babies being born out of wedlock because of that. We have abortions because of that. We have all sorts of, of evil that comes from that particular issue. Mm-hmm. So it's important to remember that the reason why the sacrament of marriage is so important is because it does it does mirror that relationship that we should have with Christ. Yeah, so this is one of those things that people often miss in the model of, well, how do I live it out? 
Uh, Paul, several places in his epistles, points to Christ as the model for what we're actually supposed to do. As he talks about, especially in the context of men, because after all, in first century society, the man had essentially all the power in that society and effectively all the power in the household. And what does Paul tell them? You know, what, what is your task as a Christian husband who has this power? Are you supposed to lord it over your wife? He says, no, look to Christ. Christ has all the power in the world as the true king. And what does he do? He pours himself out. He offers himself out of love for his spouse, the faithful, the church. He goes upon the cross for us. So Paul, you know, the Bible, this is the Bible, Holy Spirit-inspired writing tells us, you as a Christian husband especially, your task is to empty yourself. Now, we're going to fall short of that. Oh, yeah. Husbands and wives, we're going to fall short of that standard because, you know, let's be honest, we're human. You know, it's kind of like we were talking about with the ideal being that you go into marriage, both virgins. That's a wonderful ideal. If you can do that, that's that's fantastic. You'll be all the better for it. But like with all these things, you may fail. But where you fail, always look again to your model. And who's our model? None other than but Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. There's, there's something that I found interesting whenever I was doing some research. Um, I found a quote by St. John Chrysostom. Um, it says, for Christians above, or I'm sorry, if, if a man and a woman marry in order to be companions on the journey from earth to heaven, then their union will bring great joy to themselves and to others. There's an interesting part of that, two things. Number one, if we come together and we do it for the right reason, you know, everybody's going to be happy. Exactly. Um, there's not going to it's not that you're not going to have your fights. It's not that you're not going to have um, situations where where one party isn't upset with the other. But the point of it is, is that there's going to be joy that comes with that situation. But the first part of that is very interesting where it says that they marry in order to become companions on their journey from earth to heaven. Marriage is intended in many ways for us to help each other to get to heaven some there's a there's a certain amount of grace that gets there where you know i'm i'm looking to get married in the next year you know god willing and 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 australia allows <laughs> um i'll be getting married mm -hmm. and i'm super excited about that for several reasons one because i really want to start a family i want to be a father i want to be a husband um i want to raise good little catholic kids and i want to see all the things that that I wish I could have had as a child. But more importantly, I'm really looking forward into having um, someone there to push me to be a better Christian, to be a better person. And I want to be able to do the same thing for her. And I know that she's listening right now and because she listens to all these. And I'm, and I'm very, very, very blessed to have her in my life. And I look forward to spending the rest of my life with her. But very specifically, that's one of the main reasons for marriage is to help each other get to heaven. And of course, the procreation, the procreation, bringing children into the world, those types of things. Um, but 
that's a really important aspect that I think a lot of the times is missed on the other side of the aisle. Um, marriage becomes a very selfish thing. Marriage becomes, well, I'm in love with this person. It's not always about being in love with a person, but rather loving the person. So those are two different things. Right, right. How, how big a contrast there can be between those ideas. Because so often in the modern world, when we say, I'm in love, really it's a selfish impulse that is parading as, around as something selfless. Because it's about, I want this emotional satisfaction, when really that shouldn't be what you go into marriage for. Maybe that's a huge part of why we have such a problem with marriages failing in the modern world as people are going into it with this attitude of not of I'm going to love this person an action for the rest of their days but I am in love with this person a state of the self mm -hmm. right it's like the idea of having a relationship or idea of being in love versus the actual loving yeah there's it's very important to to know the difference very very important because loving loving someone is seeking to help them attain their good mm -hmm. and to help them complete their purpose not looking at something and saying wow she's pretty i'd like to marry her or wow i wonder what he can do for me or even in some cases like coming together and, and having a good friendship, that's not necessarily enough in this situation because in, in, a, in a scriptural sacramental marriage, two flesh become one. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and... well, we don't want to make it sound like we're necessarily poo-pooing things like, oh, they're beautiful. I want to spend my entire life with them or things like that. Those aren't bad things. The, the, no. the problem is that when we're looking at the faith of Christ, the faith of the church, the faith of the Bible, it's really calling us to so much more than that. So it, it's not like that's a bad thing. It's more like if you have an apple, you're eating the red skin off the apple and throwing away all the sweet part within. It, 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 it's, it's nothing compared to what you're really being called to. I um personally I, I think that that my lady is the most beautiful thing on the world. No so at this podcast, Eddie and I are gonna have a verbal argument about whose lady is prettier. <laughs> <laughs> but but I mean the thing is though is that I, I'm I'm madly I'm madly in, in love with her and I love her both. You know, but the thing is is that what's what's most important is that to be rightly ordered and seeking her good and to help her accomplish her 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 purpose um which is you know again helping each other become saints um and it's it's great to think that your wife is beautiful it's great to think that your husband is 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 the best looking guy on, on the planet that's that's wonderful but what's more important is to love them and to assist them to heaven um because those things are temp are temporal things they they last for a short period of time it's a flash in the pan, but the eternal soul is what really matters. Um, and, and that's, again, not to, not to lessen physical attraction because those things are very, very important. But, you know, having a good, solid, 
Christian foundation is the most important thing that you could ever have in a marriage. And that begins with understanding um, what the sacrament of marriage really is. And that's taken me a very long time to, uh, <laughs> to learn. And I'm very glad that I've waited, you know, 40 years because I turned 40 this last week. Um, I've, I've waited that long and I'm happy to have done that because I know that I've made the right decision in doing so. All right, so maybe we should zero in on the number one thing people get caught up on when it comes to marriage in the Catholic Church, which is this issue of indissolubility. Pretty Wait. much any other Christian community, there's some idea of we don't like divorce, but it's permissible. Even in Eastern Orthodoxy, which in most things is right on board with us Catholics, there is a certain attitude of we'll tolerate a divorce. We might even tolerate two. So what gives with that? I mean, first thing, let's address a misconception. If you're married to someone who's abusive and manipulative and all that, does the Catholic Church require that you stay with them all your life, living in the same household and utterly dependent on them for everything? By the way I phrase that question, you might be guessing maybe the answer isn't yes. Go ahead, James. Because I, 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 I hear people who hear the Catholic Church doesn't let you divorce and remarry. And that's what they think that means, is if you're really in a toxic situation where like your mental and physical health are at grave, are in grave danger that well, that just sucks to be you. No, no, that's that's not quite the case. Um, and we'll get into why that's not the case. But the contention we have is that when you are married, you are married until one of you has passed on from this life. Which means if you try to marry somebody else, that is adultery. And where do we get this? Honestly, this is one that I, I, I don't understand how people don't get where we get this because that's the Bible. That is, that is literally the explicit teaching of Jesus Christ. Whoever divorces and remarries is committing adultery. But what about that exception? Now, people say, well, if you look in the Gospel of Matthew, there's something about, except for cases of, and the translation varies. Some say fornication, some say adultery, so on and so forth. Well, surely that blows this whole thing wide open. So are you guys familiar with the details behind that one? Not exactly. Not me neither, no. Yeah, so that's one where a lot of people are looking at a Greek word. Um, the, the Greek word is porneia, which might sound familiar because that's where we get our, our word for pornography. Um, now, porneia can be translated very loosely as sexual immorality, and that's where a lot of people get ideas of this means adultery, this means fornication. Uh, the root word of porneia actually means prostitute. Um, so the way you translate it has to take that into account. The other thing you have to take into account is this exception only occurs in one gospel, the gospel of Matthew. 
Luke and Mark make no mention of this whatsoever. And the interesting thing is even in Matthew, when the apostles hear this, they don't think of this as a pretty good-sized loophole they can use in a pinch. Rather, they, they say, if this were so, it's expedient not to marry. Uh, so what does it really mean there? Well, first understand, Matthew is written to the Jews. Um, it is written to Greek-speaking Jews, primarily to establish that Jesus is the prophesied Messiah. So why is this exclusion only in the gospel really written for the Jews? Generally speaking, the, the understanding is that this is a legal concept. And you get to the concept of the word porneia in a legal sense. What you're talking about probably is not you get married, somebody slept around a bit, oh, I guess we're not married anymore. It's probably more something like you engage in an illicit marriage, that you weren't validly married from the start. And this is where we get the idea of annulment. So in the Catholic Church, if you get married, and later it looks like this might have not been a valid marriage, you can go back and look at it and say, what were we really married in the first place? And that's the only way in the Catholic Church to dissolve a marriage, is to acknowledge that it never existed in the first place. But that's not so much something the church does as something the church recognizes as a fact, whether it is or is not so. So to yeah. that, we probably need to go ahead and, and explain what makes something a valid marriage. There are four separate elements that make a valid marriage in the, in the church. Um, number one, both spouses are free to marry. So both are able to get married, according to canonical law. Um, they freely exchange their consent to that as number two. Number three, in consenting to marry, they have the intention to marry for life, to be faithful to one another, and to be open to children, which there's an asterisk there that we'll need to talk about. And four, their consent is given in the canonical form. Um, so quickly, the princess bride... Uh, which is kind of in a medieval analog, that would not have been a valid marriage because that was not free consent. No. And it was certainly not free consent to marry for life in any meaningful sense. After all, the Princess Buttercup was going to commit suicide. I'm pretty sure that invalidates that aspect. Exactly. And that's probably the best example of an of a invalid <laughs> marriage. Yeah. Uh, this meme of you can be forced into a marriage and then you're stuck that occurs in a lot of historical fiction. Um, you might be socially stuck by convention and family and such, but as far as the church is concerned, no. And actually a lot of ar aristocrats ended up with annulled marriages because that kind of stuff happened and the church was actually the one saying, no, that's not marriage. That's not what we're called to as Christians. Kind of going a little bit deeper um, to define certain things. What it means to be free is that it means that no person, no person and no desire are controlling you. So like you said before, um, being forced into something. Um, total, meaning that you don't hold anything back. Being faithful means that you're, you're committed to your spouse and that commitment guides your other actions. And being fruitful, your love is life-giving because it's free, total, and faithful. I mentioned an asterisk earlier when we were talking about 
um, being open to the possible possibility of children. That is why same-sex marriages are not valid in the Catholic Church. Um, a same-sex relationship cannot fulfill that requirement. Uh, there is no possibility for the procreation. Um, and while that is in some circles considered to be hateful, it's just a natural fact. Um, two women cannot conceive a child. Two men cannot conceive a child. Yeah, this is something we've really lost, is most of history, like, lots of cultures throughout history have had active homosexual relationships as a thing, but the concept of a same-sex marriage is almost entirely unique to modernity because throughout history, everybody knew you cannot separate marriage from its procreative function. Uh, now I know there would be people who say, well, what about this? What about this? Uh, we, we do have to acknowledge that there's a difference between situations where there is something that's kind of accidental to the nature of the person that's come up. Like you get married and it turns out somewhere down the line that one of you is infertile. Okay, that does not invalidate your marriage because that's just something that happened to you. It's not who you are. Whereas your sex, male and female, that is part of who you are. Because like we've said on previous episodes, we are embodied creatures. There's also something to be said to you on a different note about the nature of the individuals and the sacraments that they've received. So we have the concepts of valid and licit in the church. Mm -hmm. um, and those are two different, two different words, two different concepts. A marriage can be licit, but not valid. Um, meaning in the case of if one individual is not a baptized Christian, so then you should go ahead and quickly define what licit and valid mean. Go ahead. Yes, uh, licit essentially just comes from the Latin words for it is allowed. If something is licit, that means that the proper authorities have permitted it to happen. Um, but valid refers more to what actually happens. So the case of something that's valid but not licit is something that actually happens even if the proper authorities aren't involved. Or the opposite, if you have something that is um, licit but not valid, is something that's allowed to go ahead, but the actual effect is not involved. So here we're talking about the concept of can you have a sacramental marriage when one person is not baptized? And the answer to that is no, it's not going to be sacramental because that's part of it. Now, if you're a Protestant who's been baptized in the Trinitarian form and you're a Catholic that is baptized in the Catholic Church and you get married, that is then quite possibly a sacramental marriage. Typically it will be. There are some issues, of course, again, dealing with the other three ports. Um, however, um, you need to be a baptized Christian for it to be a sacramental thing. Um, but it will be licit. It will be a natural marriage. And you are, as a, as a Catholic, you are to stay with that person, except in the case of Pauline privilege. And if one of you would like to take that, that's not my uh, particular forte to talk about. But <laughs> me, me neither. I mean, that, that, that is one of those things that 
for so long that would never be invoked and now all of a sudden the past couple of generations is coming back up. Uh, and the thing is, I have to admit, I've never read about this outside of Paul's actual writings in the New Testament. So I, I would only be giving my impression from the reading. And that's, that's pretty much all I know of, is that basically if one, if one person uh, does not suffer to stay with the other, in the case of one being a Christian, one not being a Christian, then it's okay to separate from them. Then that is, that is a licit reason to separate um it's 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 a tough situation and it's something that i think what we're going to do is probably do a deeper dive um in a separate episode about this because there's a lot more to marriage than just what we're talking we're gonna about we're going to have to do a deep dive for every sacrament i mean and then the next one we do when we get to the eucharist because we've set aside a bunch of time for that when we do our deep dive for that that's probably going to be a two-part deep dive <laughs> easily easily so because it's so important and i mean at this point i think you know it's it's a good point to kind of go into that because marriage and the eucharist go hand in hand um so the marriage feast of the lamb exactly where does that happen where what 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 does that biblical image point to it points to the eucharist so Here's what, this is one of those ones where there's so much to say, where do you start? My instinct would be, let's start with the Old Testament before we even get to Christ. Does the Old Testament point ahead to something like the Eucharist? I think it does. Um, there's a point in Bible prophecy that the early church used to actually evangelize a lot of Jews on this point. Uh, let me see if I can bring up the actual scripture. And let's see, what version do we want to do? Let's do King James. That's a classic. And again, this isn't a kooky Catholic translation. This is the King James version. So the prophet Malachi, who is the last biblical prophet, he's, this is the last book of the Old Testament. In the first chapter, right off the bat, you have the Lord chastising Israel through his prophet Malachi. What's he chastising them for? For their, their sacrifices, they're no good. They're offering impure bread, bread, they're offering animals that are blind or lame, or you know, just they're not offering their best and they, their hearts aren't really in it. It's become rote and mechanical and cynical. So what's the Lord gonna do about this? Well, this is one of the most powerful verses in this book. For from the rising of the sun, even unto the going down of the same, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. And in every place, incense shall be offered unto my name, and a pure offering. For my name shall be great among the heathen, saith the Lord of hosts. Now, some of the translations there will differ on some points. Um, some will say incense, some will say sacrifice, some will just say offering, um, where it says a pure offering, some say sacrifice. Um, the Dewey Reams actually says a pure oblation, it's like something poured out. Um, but this is an interesting prophecy, because if you think about this, the Lord is talking about there being a pure sacrifice that's offered where? Not just in Israel, 
It's offered everywhere, from the rising of the sun even to the going down. And what kind of sacrifice is this? A pure one. A pure sacrifice. Well, okay, this is prophecy. This is, pointing ahead, this is pointing ahead to the future. And most especially, it's pointing ahead to something with Christ. So as Christians, we should acknowledge right off the bat, well, pure offering, pure sacrifice, that's got to be our Lord on the cross. Great. I think Catholics and Protestants can look at that and agree 100% on that. But here's the question. How can that sacrifice be offered from the rising of the sun to its setting by all the nations? Well, according to the early church and according to the, to the Catholic faith to this day, that is the Eucharist. So right there, that is Old Testament prophecy. It says there's going to be a pure offering, none other than Christ, that's going to be offered everywhere. It's important to understand, too, like when we're talking about sacrifice in the Catholic Church, we don't believe that Jesus is being crucified over every time again. Right. Oh, yeah, I mean, you look at that text, it's using the singular here. This is a pure sacrifice. So it's one. And, and, this, and this is kind of the, the weird thing as a, a Jew at the time you'd have to struggle with. How can there be one pure sacrifice that is offered among all the nations? Because that doesn't work with, say, an animal or your cereal grains or the other sacrifices commended by the Old Covenant. You have to have something radically new for there to be one sacrifice that is everywhere. And even at that point, too, you have this very small ethnocentric group of people in the Middle East that worship this God. And God has been saying, that same God is saying that everywhere this will be done. Yeah, and, that, and that's another historical cue there. This is not a prophecy that could have been fulfilled sometime between Malachi's life and the life of Jesus. If all nations are participating, this has to be the new covenant, all nations coming to the Lord through the gospel. It's interesting that when we start looking at the institution of the Lord's Supper, of the Eucharist, we have to go back to the Old Testament because it's 100% rooted in that. Um, the particulars of it were the, uh, the remnants of the Passover Seder. Mm-hmm. And there's very, it's, it's, it's going to be a very long discussion if we get into the different cups and what they each meant. So we're going to kind of probably hold off until a deep dive. Yeah, if you want to quickly look into stuff like that, just Google um, a fellow by the name of Grant Petrie, that's spelled P-I-T-R-E, and the Jewish roots of the Eucharist. He's got so much stuff on that. We, we can't even come close. It's, it's, a, it's a very long story, but it's the understanding that, that Christ, said very specifically this is my body this is my blood um as often as you do this do it in remembrance of me um when i was taking my rci class and whenever i was discuss i was discussing with my priest about about the eucharist because i had a lot of questions i was the guy in rcia that when the priest asked have any of you ever doubted the possibility that jesus was you know 
part of the Godhead. I was the only person in, in my class to raise my hand. Um, and so I had a ton of questions. And I had been a former Pentecostal pastor. I mean, I, I had been in church and out of church my entire life. But even, even with that, I had all these questions. But the one nagging one that always sat there was to, to other preachers, why did Jesus say, this is my body, this is my blood? And I know this gets brought up a lot by Catholics, but it's important. There's no allegory there. Yeah. There's, there's no allegory in that situation. Yeah, I know people who will, will say, well, you know, is can mean lots of things. Is can be used in a metaphorical sense, which is true. They'll say things like, you know, Jesus says, I am the door. Does that mean Jesus is a literal wooden door? <laughs> well, no. Therefore, we're not obliged to believe that Jesus is actually becoming bread and wine. Your bread and wine is actually becoming Jesus. Um, but the thing is, if it was, if that, that argument might have some merit if it was only that line that for some reason is included in all three synoptic gospels. Um, but the thing is, is it's much more than that. Uh, I mean, one thing we as Catholics love to point to is you look at John chapter 6, Jesus goes on and on about the bread of life. And when people doubt him, he doesn't kind of back off and kind of spin a new story. Or he doesn't try to spiritualize this into a way that, you know, really it's pointing to something else like it's a parable. Rather, he doubles down. He's like, no, really, guys, I'm serious. To the point that lots of people left. And the only way you can really weasel out of John chapter 6, I, I've seen people try to do it this way, is to point to verse 63. When he is commenting on their unbelief, our Lord says, it is the spirit that quickens, the flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. So I know people who read that like, aha, aha. Well, you know, so Jesus must be talking about something that's purely spirit here because he says the flesh profits nothing. But two problems with this. First one, most obvious that should be setting off alarm bells is we're talking about the flesh of Jesus Christ. If you believe the flesh of Jesus Christ profits us nothing, um, I got bad news for you. You're, you're not a Christian. Uh, because it's, it, that is foundational to the Christian faith that Jesus Christ took on flesh and that that flesh was offered on the cross for our salvation. That, that flesh is profitable. But here's the other thing. When Jesus contrasts flesh and spirit elsewhere, is he doing it in this kind of dualistic sense of, oh, it's such a terrible thing that you have bodies? No, 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 no. Spirit and flesh is a motif Christ uses all the time for belief and unbelief. So what's he just told people to believe? Eat my body, drink my blood, and then he's chastising them for unbelief. That's what's going on with that verse. It's, it's not a loophole that lets you pretend that, oh, you know, all that stuff being said there is an allegory and everybody in the early church was wrong. I mean, speaking of the early church, you could look at some of the things that were written in the New Testament in the epistles about communion. 
I mean, Paul, in, in, I believe it's in 1 Corinthians. What does he say about receiving communion unworthily? I mean, right. if, if you're in a church where communion is just a symbol, and someone who is a serial adulterer, they've got a bunch of bodies in their basement, and they've cheated on their taxes, and they wear, they wear fur, and they probably drive under on the interstate. If they receive communion, I mean, what is that, really? They, they've had a snack, but they really weren't supposed to. Okay. Paul seems to be talking about something quite a bit more than a symbol. It's almost like you are participating in something, something that really matters. And so this is where I'd like to jump into earlier. We talked about, well, aren't we all priests? Mm -hmm. Well, okay. What is the function of a priest? A priest in the Old Testament offered and partook of sacrifice. Well, here's the problem in the New Testament for us Christians. Christ is our ultimate sacrifice. We're not doing the law of Moses. You're not doing animal sacrifice, things like that. So if the sacrifice you're supposed to partake of is Jesus Christ, well, okay, that's how you're a priest, via the Eucharist, by partaking of the Lamb and doing it worthily because you're not just doing some vague memorial. When Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, it's a new Passover. You're doing something profound, something that has a reality there that you can't get around without getting into trouble. Because as, as, as Paul says, you know, uh, um, you know dis, dis, not discerning the body of our Lord is a huge problem. It, it's not just, you know, Oh, it's a symbol. No, you have to discern the body of the Lord. You have to receive worthily, and that's where you are a royal priesthood. You know, I, I find that I find that it's difficult for Protestants to understand why the Eucharist is so important. Um, I, yeah, I don't. There's so much there. Has, it's important in so many ways. I mean, what, what do you even begin with? If someone asks you, why is the Eucharist so important to you, Catholics? I mean, other than just saying, because that's Jesus Christ, my Lord and my Savior. Or, or is, you know, the, the custom in the Latin rite where you're going through the communion uh, ritual during Mass is uh, when the host is commanded to pray silently, my Lord and my God, which is the salutation given by Thomas when he saw the risen Lord for the first time. And mm -hmm. I, I think the best way to, to, to explain it is really, again, I, I love going back to the catechism. Um, and paragraph 1324 it says that the eucharist is the source and summit of the christian life the other sacraments and indeed all ecclesiastical ministries and works of the apostolate are bound up with the eucharist and are oriented toward it for in the blessed eucharist is contained the whole spiritual good of the church namely christ himself our pash 
The Eucharist is an effect, efficacious sign and sublime cause of that communion, which in the divine life and in that unity of the people of God, by which the church is kept in being. It is the culmination both of God's actions, sanctifying the world in Christ, and of the worship men offer to Christ and through him to the Father and the Holy Spirit. Um, it's important to understand that this is literally what binds us all together. Um, we and use the term... Someone might look at that like, that's a lot of things to say about a ritual. <laughs> um, but we would say, well, it must be all those things because it's Christ. Like, literally, we truly believe that. It's not just some vague spiritualism. We believe that is Christ's body and blood which was offered on our behalf, which was tormented and died and rose for us. So all those things we're saying, that's not going too far. That's not going far, that, that's, that's not going far enough, if anything. There, there's no shortage of things you can say about our Lord and Savior. Oh, no, definitely. If I could jump in, I know I've been kind of quiet these past, because of course, when it comes to sacrament of marriage, that's definitely not on my list of priorities at the moment. But uh, no, when it comes to the, the Eucharist, uh, and this is how I try to convince others, especially those who, uh, like I said, I like to try my best to evangelize towards those who have fallen into a sense of uh, new age and occultic mindsets. And the thing is that's so interesting is that people are craving for a connection with God, right? And they want to say the higher power. They want to say, you know, if they start going into uh, transcendental meditation or the East, they want to practice yoga. Okay, so in, in, in the, in the uh, Eastern traditions, yoga is typically, if you, it's not just, you know, the calisthenics that people mostly think of when they hear the word yoga. Yoga is a word that means union, okay, and typically means union with God. And a lot of times people will try to do whatever they can. They'll go on meditation retreats. They're going to go to try to do some indigenous practices. But the thing is, is that the beauty of the Eucharist is that, you know, assuming all conditions are met, you know, you receive the Eucharist in, in, in a state of grace worthily, right? You know, the idea here is that whenever a person takes Holy Communion, uh, he or she will receive an increase of sanctifying grace. We talked about this in, our pre in a previous episode, as well as a, uh, a claim to actual graces to help us live the life of holiness. And, and the thing is, is that as a food nourishes the body, right, the Eucharist being Christ himself, right, being present, right, body, blood, soul, and divinity, we are going to be in communion with our God. And at that moment, that's the sacramental sign right there of the invisible reality being made present through the, the Holy Eucharist. And so I know a lot of people want to, and that's how it is with a lot of Catholics nowadays. We've seen the Gallup polls and the all sorts of different things where they say that the majority, even the majority of Catholics believe that it's some kind of a memorial or symbolic ritual. But it, lo and behold, you are involved with the Lord. And, you know, to me, that's probably where you have so many um, mystics in the Christian traditions who, upon receiving the Eucharist, they, some, they may enter into like a mystical ecstasy because they are emblazoned by the glory of God by their act. But 
there's to me that's that's the thing I try to tell them that you can experience God and enter communion with Him, and it is through the Catholic Church. Yeah, I mean, how much more intimate can you get? Meet me. Uh, I mean, we we might not even say um, almost kind of flippantly bite me, but if you look at John <laughs> six. Um, the word used for eat is uh, trogon, uh, which I, I'm not using the proper grammatical. <laughs> I can't remember which one it is. That's the base word. Um, it It is rendered as eat in most translations. Um, but what you fail to capture with that is trogon is a very visceral kind of eating. It, you might say a better translation would be gnaw on. To chew or to grind. Yeah. yeah. It, it, it's a word you would use for uh, you know, a pack of wolves tearing apart a deer. So th this is not a poetic form of the word. This is very intimate, very unique. Mm -hmm. Now, there, there, there is to say that there is some symbology that goes along with the Eucharist, though, too. Of yes. course. Because um, if you take a look at the actual bread that was used, it's not the, it's not the typical host that we have now. Although the host that, if you were to go look at a host, it's very similar. Um, but the matzah bread that would have been used was both striped and pierced based off of its its composition, the way that it was it was it was uh, baked. It had no leaven in it, so of course leavening agents, yeast were were seen as something uh, akin to um, sin in the Old Testament. So the the feast of Passover was the feast of unleavened bread. It was to remind you to get all the sin out of your life, and in the in some eastern churches they, they use leavened bread which represents that the christ is risen from the dead so they use a risen bread in that and, and in other other situations i won't go deeply into that because that's a little bit different but for the most part it's, it's two different ways of symbolizing exactly both beautiful and if if ever you run into somebody who says only one is good they probably need a socking in the nose because, you know it's good to understand that there are traditions that are different and it's more important that the the form is done correctly and canonically it's important to do that because that's what we're told to do yeah um, but yeah. going back again like that bread wine don't do grape juice don't right. do whatever weird things people like to do these days like well one thing where as a political demonstration, somebody did it with Skittles and a bottle of pop. As like, oh, good lord, Arizona tea. Oh, oh. As I mean, you you don't have to believe in Catholic tradition to know that is exactly like. That's almost the opposite of what the Bible says. <laughs> there's there's a lot of significance to it. Um, the production of wine. Um, is is a has a very specific way that it went about in old in old testament times and also in, during the new testament times literally grapes were taken and they were crushed by the feet just like christ was crushed um the bread has been pierced and it's broken uh to be handed out just as christ was was pierced and, and broken for us so there's a lot of symbolism that goes into that but, but at the same time the understanding that we believe in something called transubstantiation, which sets us apart from basically every other uh, church, except for our Orthodox brothers, to some degree. Um, the, I mean, the, the Orthodox, this is one of those areas where they get kind of funny because there's a long historical beef 
they'll tell you we don't believe in transubstantiation, but what they mean by that is they don't like to nail it down with language. Mm -hmm. There's there's more mystery to it. They basically believe in it. it they just like 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 Andy said, in, in the Christian East there's more emphasis on history, but belief is really the same. And and you know, in, in a pinch, if a if a Catholic is in an area and there's only an Orthodox church available, then their their sacrifice, their their uh, communion is valid for us. So it's it's an understanding that that's important though is that we believe that after the words of, of consecration that this is now literally the body and blood of christ that is to say that it's not consubstantial but it is literally has become that and i'm going to be honest james you're a little bit more eloquent marcos you're definitely more eloquent when talking about this stuff than i am uh, so please go ahead and take that well yeah the interesting thing is while most Protestants today believe in a purely symbolic understanding of communion, there have been a number of other ways that have been proposed throughout the history of the Reformation. Um, so Martin Luther believed that, that uh, our Lord came in to be with and among the bread and the wine. So Lutherans, at least if they're traditional Lutherans, they believe that in a bit of communion you have particles of jesus and particles of bread calvinists if they're traditional calvinists they'll go with calvin's idea which is that christ is spiritually present but not physically present he's not bodily present and even then they'll usually say and he's only spiritually present to believers so it only really happens once you receive communion as a believer um, which, I mean, that one right there is, is kind of upside down because if it is the offering of the community, and of course, Protestant communities don't believe it's an offering, but the biblical model, gosh darn it, um, it's, it's a communal thing. It doesn't, it's not just you as a believer that enters your mouth. Um, but most people today adopt the view that's associated with Ulrich Zwingli, which is it's just a symbol. I mean, that just departs so much from the scripture. And even in the time of the Reformation, among the reformers, this was a big fighting thing among them because they recognized this mattered. Uh, Martin Luther even had a saying regarding the Calvinists that he would rather drink the blood of Jesus with the Pope than drink mere wine with the fanatics in Geneva, referring to the Calvinists. Um, it's it's a big deal um but all these views fall short in some way and the way they fall short is our lord says is he doesn't say with among and under he doesn't say top of doesn't say a top of doesn't say spiritually is doesn't say represents he says is and that's the faith of the earliest christians that's the faith of the ancient church the medieval church the renaissance church the modern church the, the, the only way to find someone before the Protestant Reformation and some of the proto-reformers like Wycliffe to find someone who doesn't believe in the real presence as we Catholics, along with Orthodox Christians, believe is to go to Gnostic heretics who mm -hmm. only believe it because they refuse to accept that Jesus Christ had a body. It, it is a radical proposition to say the Lord's Supper is just symbolic. 
that it's not Christ on the cross. It's not the risen Christ. It doesn't have a sacrificial element. It, it's, it's radically new, and it's utterly unbiblical. And in my experience, people only run to that view because they believe the only alternative is this kind of bizarre caricature of constantly sacrificing Jesus again and again and again. And they'll say, well, that's condemned in Hebrews. And that's true. That's exactly why we don't believe it. And that's why you should abandon both absurd extremes. It's real. It is sacrificial because it is the one sacrifice of Christ. Yeah, it's, in, it's important to understand the idea of, of the mystical nature of Catholicism as well. And I know, Marcos, you're, you're more in touch with this than probably either of us, but my understanding of the Mass, and of course mm -hmm. the Mass is the liturgy and, and the, the consecration, right. um, but the Mass is the point where, as some people put it, heaven and earth kiss. Yes. Mm-hmm. And what's what's really cool is that there's a um, in in Greek there's a uh, apparently so we lose a lot of things in translation because a lot of times we're very utilitarian. Are we so, getting an epiousius? Well, no, but I was going to make the distinction between Kronos and Kairos. Okay, well I'll get into epiousius later. <laughs> so so when we think of linear time, we think of that's what we mean when, when you say chronological, linear time, time's moving through real time. This is your real time experience. And in, in uh, there's another sense of time where, where there's something called kairos. And kairos is an ancient Greek term that refers to like the right critical or an opportune moment. And uh, what's interesting about kairos is, is that it's kind of like the, you can think of it as the appointed time in the purpose of God, right? The time when God acts. And when the Holy Mass is occurring, we believe that um, it is, it, you know, uh, we believe that there is definitely kind of like a rupture of eternity happening as the Mass is coming through. And I know in, the, uh, in some Eastern rites, um, they have a deacon that proclaims to the priests uh, in, in the same, it, it is time, but of course they say kairos for the Lord to act, inter, inter, indicating that the time of the liturgy is an intersection with eternity. So that you can get into all sorts of beautiful um, analogies and that kind of thing when you try to uh, contemplate the, the mysteries of the Mass, because uh, you know, God is, is you know, we, it, we, not to get too deep into the theology, but, you know, God is beyond us, you know, he's transcendent, and, but through the person of Jesus Christ, we have, you know, the, kind of like the paradox of paradoxes, right, we have, in, in terminology, we say the hypostasis of the divine and human natures, we have an infinite being also being confined in, you know, a more well at the time we could say that he was in a human well he is always forever in the human body but it's very interesting um to to when you of course you end up going down little rabbit holes here and this is why you have to always maintain you know a sense of prudence and and humility when you go down uh, mystical uh, routes of thought but you know that's that to me that that's always been my my thing of the the intersection of of art you know, temporal reality with the greater eternity of, of God. 
And there's something to be said about the physical presence there too. Yes. Um, when you walk into a, into a Catholic church, I dare you to say that it feels the same as a Protestant church because I have never in my life felt that type of weight is the best way to put it. Whenever I walk into a, a, a regular Protestant church, mm-hmm. Jesus is before you in the tabernacle. When you walk in, that's, that's why we kneel or why we bow in the, in the Eastern church. Um, it's because we believe that he's right there in front of us. When we have the monstrance out for, uh, for adoration, that's why we, we stay silent. That's why we, why we, we bow before that because we believe that he's present there. Um, but there's something about the nature of the mass that is different. And that is simply because the whole purpose of the mass is the Eucharist. Mm-hmm. I kind of reminiscing on my former Protestant life. There's, and I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna get too picky, and I, I don't want to insult people here, but so often I found that in a Protestant church, or if you prefer a non-liturgical church, I would walk in. And the center of the stage would be the podium. And there would be some type of concert that happens. Sometimes it could be what I would consider worship and praise. That's personal mm-hmm. opinion. But for some reason, the central focus of the entire service was the message, which, you know, scripture is, is wonderful. Um, if you go to a mass, if you look through a missile, you're probably going to find more scripture there than you will in a Sunday morning service. Um, but that's a different story. But my point is, is that the central focus is going to be the preacher and his message, his personal interpretation of whatever that scripture says. Whereas with the Catholic Church, the homily pay, plays a part what we would call the message, the homily, plays a part in the Mass, in the liturgy. But that's not the central focus. In fact, the priest doesn't stand in the center at any time except for during those words of consecration, which is very, very important. Mm -hmm. Because at all points and all times, the central focus is that table. Is Christ there, his sacrifice? And that alone shows me the direction that the Catholic Church takes. We, we take a direct approach to Christ. Our central focus is placed on him. And the Eucharist is the summit of that. It is the, the epitome of all that we believe and all that we hold dear. It mm-hmm. binds us together in the mystical body of Christ. It, it brings us together as family, which I think is one of the coolest things about the Catholic Church. <laughs> when you go into a new town and you meet a fellow Catholic, it's like you already know them because you know that that person believes the same things that you do. And you found a, a person who's shared in that table with you. But, you know, I digress. Um, again, it's, it's a big difference. Like when you're, when you're looking at the communion that I took as, as a kid in the Pentecostal church, the grape juice and the cracker, you know, that was, that was filled up and handed out to that solemn moment where there is a, a real presence that's in front of you. Yeah, that's 
it's a really great way to look at where's the center of your church because growing up I get critiques of Catholicism like at the center of your church is a priest well actually it turns out that if you think about it it is the Protestant communities where at their center is a preacher and at the center of the Catholic community is simultaneously the cross and the empty tomb because it really does rotate around the Eucharist mm -hmm. and, and so you know again we keep hitting these moments where the Reformation narrative of it needs to be about grace, it needs to be about the gospel. We need to set man aside and focus on God. Well, yeah, yeah, and we're already there where it really matters. And that is the, the, the difference. The understanding that our focus in the Mass is Jesus. It's not Mary. It's not Joseph. Right. During... Yeah. Yeah, if you're going, especially a Latin Rite Mass, if you're going there to get your dose of Mary, you get what, one mention during a, the uh, confiture, and that's even if it's done fully. Maybe one mention elsewhere. I know Eastern liturgies have it a little more, but the Mass is very Christ-centered. And it's also very scriptural. Uh, I don't know where people get some of these caricatures they have about Catholic worship. Well, I think it's also going back to what we talked about with the saints. It's it's an understanding of dulia, hyperdulia, and latria, that there's a reverence that we have for those saints, and then there's the worship and the adoration and the adulation that we give to God. Right. It's important to, and again, just because you reject those definitions does not change those definitions. Yeah, but you know when we're talking about the mass. That, that barely comes up at all, especially in the Latin Rite, compared yeah. to just, just so much of it being Christ, the gospel, the cross, the empty tomb. Hey, even in the, in the Eastern Rite, in my Maronite church, we, you hear Mary a couple times. Yeah. And it's usually, it's usually, and let us join together with all the saints, with our bishop, with our priests, with the Blessed Virgin Mary. Her, her most chaste spouse, St. Joseph, something along those lines. I mean, it's talking not about her, but about joining with her in her adoration of her son. Even there, yeah. she points us right back to Jesus. Yeah. Yeah, we're, we're going to have to do an episode where it's about just, just Catholic liturgy. Um, because, you know, even though there are differences in different Catholic liturgies, whether you're talking about the ordinary form in the West, the Latin Mass, um, the various Eastern liturgies, um, like the Divine Liturgy of St. John Chrysostom, yeah, there are differences, but at the heart you see the same thing going on. It's great stuff. Yeah. Uh, we really got to get into it in detail. Is there, there's so much stuff that if you don't know what you're looking at, you might miss. And it's good to understand that those those rites are about certain ethnic groups. You know, these are these are certain very ancient traditions in most cases. Ones that have been around for several hundreds of years. Like, say, for example, with the Maronite Church, we've been around since I think the fourth or fifth century, if I remember correctly. Um, and I should probably know that, but. St. John, or Saint, not St. John Maroon, I'm sorry, St. Maroon um, was a friend, like I mentioned earlier, of St. John Christensen. And mm -hmm. he adopted his liturgy 
before his monks. And that's how we started. Um, our tradition is very ancient. It's one of the oldest. Um, you have some in Ethiopia that goes back to, I think, the second century AD, the same liturgy. Um, and, and there's, but the interesting thing about all of that, um, and we haven't, we haven't really talked about this before, but is the four marks of the church, mm -hmm. which is that we are one holy Catholic and apostolic. Um, we are one church. So at all points, even though you can almost compare our churches to potato chips with different flavors, we're all the same potato chip. <laughs> we're all the same. Yeah. Like we're all one church. We just have different flavors. There's just different ways of doing it, but it's, it's the same in the Catholic church. We are one. I, I can tell you as someone who is a Latin Rite Catholic who normally goes to the ordinary form of the mass, but who spent a year at a Byzantine parish. Uh, yeah, you, you get these differences, but you look at the heart of it, it's the same thing going on. And that's because it all has the same source, which is in Jesus Christ. And yeah, you know, we'll have to get into this in that episode, but actually the thing a lot of people don't realize about traditional Christian worship is it's a reformation of temple worship from Judaism. Because we're, we're all for the Reformation, <laughs> but we're looking towards where the Messiah reformed Judaism from the Old Covenant into the New Covenant. Uh, this is kind of an interesting uh, comparison to get into how Catholicism and Orthodoxy are a lot like Second Temple Judaism plus the Messiah, whereas Protestantism really is a lot like um, rabbinical Judaism in a lot of ways. But th those are parallels we'll have to get into in depth in the future. And there are a lot of, of, of things to be said about that that are absolutely yeah. true. And, and most of it comes from the scripture. And, and like I pointed people too, yeah, a lot of it's the scripture, but also look at you know, the Jewish roots of lots of these things. Talked about Jewish roots of some of our Marian practices, our Jewish roots to the Eucharist. You know, the stuff and the Passover um, uh, uh, remembrance. You have things like the bread of the presence, which a lot of people don't know about, but in, in the temple you would have bread that represented the abiding presence of God with his Israel. Um, things like expectations of the incoming Messiah and this idea of a new exodus that would have a new manna. Uh, when they asked Jesus, send us manna from heaven, that's, that's not coming from nowhere. That's part of the messianic expectations, is that he's going to give you a new manna. He's going to give you a new bread from heaven that you're actually going to eat. Um, once again, pointing to Christ is really in, in the Lord's Supper. Um, things like that. Oh, and the other point I wanted to get into earlier, I didn't know what Greek word Marcus was looking for. Uh, <laughs> yeah, the, the, the Our Father, the Lord's Prayer, when it says our daily bread, daily bread is actually kind of a loose translation of the Greek. Um, the word for daily in that, in the Greek, is epiousios, which literally means something like super substantial or beyond the nature of, essentially supernatural. Um, so a lot of people, a lot of Bible scholars, they look at that and they say, well, yeah, that's a prayer about daily needs, but it's also a, a prayer about our most essential need, which is to receive the bread of life, which is Jesus Christ. Um, so there's another thing that points to the Eucharist as something that matters. 
Oh, definitely. The um, and you know, that, and that's the thing. You know, this the thing that gets lost a lot of times with translation because the word that we are we have received right is primarily through translated sources, right? We have translations to go by, and of course, sometimes translations go off the, the rails, like the message translation. They, that's a very verse translation, but um, the thing is, yeah, that's that's putting it lightly. But the oh, idea. Yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna stay out of that. <laughs> anyway, I've I've got a friend who like we will just for fun he'll read out of his message and then I'll read out of my Bible and we like lose track of what verse the other one's on because they're so wildly different. <laughs> but um, you know, phrases really right I mean, for uses, but don't make that your go-to Bible. Oh yeah, oh, but, I, but so. So right. in the past. Anyway, anyway, forget the message. What were you saying? Okay. So, uh, I'm, you know, when you're, when, when we speak of communion, right? And that's, you know, that's the thing that like, there's so many words that we use for uh, the Holy Eucharist, right? The act of communion, receiving communion. And uh, the thing is, it all kind of like when we were talking about earlier about the mystical uh, body of Christ. It just reminded me of, you know, in John 17, 21, that's where Jesus says, uh, you know, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And that rang a bell of a uh, pretty powerful quote from, uh, I think it was St. John Damascene. And he says, you know, he, he, he writes to us, uh, if the sacrament is a union with Christ and at the same time a union of all, one with another, it must give us real unity with those who receive it as we do. And also, this also reminded me of another quote from St. Augustine from one of his sermons. And, you know, when, when the Catholic goes up to receive uh, the Eucharist, you know, the priest will always uh, present with, at least with the, with the uh, ordinary form, the priest will present and and at, tell you the body of Christ, and you say amen. And so St. Augustine writes here and says, uh, the body of Christ you are told, and you answer amen. Be members then of the body of Christ that your amen may be true. Why is this mystery accomplished with bread? We shall say nothing of our own about it. Rather, let us hear the apostle who, speaking of the sacrament, says, we being many are one body, one bread. Understand and rejoice. Unity, devotion, charity, one bread. And what is this one bread? One body made up of many. Consider that the bread is not made of one grain alone, but of many. During the time of exorcism, you were, or to say, in the mill. At baptism, you were wetted with water. Then the Holy Spirit came into you like the fire which bakes the dough. Be then what you see and receive what you are. Now for the chalice, my brethren, Remember how wine is made. Many grapes are hang on the bunch, but the liquid which runs out of them mingles together in unity. So has the Lord willed that we should belong to him, and he has consecrated on his altar the mystery of our peace and our unity. That kind of reminds me of this quote that I found in the Summa earlier. Um, of course, be complete with that an Aquinas reference. Just saying. <laughs> Um, he says in one of his uh, his objections or replies to objections, 
The church's sacraments are ordained for helping man in the spiritual life, but the spiritual life is analogous to the corporeal, since corporeal things bear a resemblance to spiritual. Now it is clear that just as generation is required for corporeal life, since thereby man receives life and growth, whereby man is brought to maturity, so likewise food is required for the preservation of life. Consequently, just as for the spiritual life, there had to be baptism, which is spiritual generation, and confirmation, which is spiritual growth. So there needed to be the sacrament of the Eucharist, which is the spiritual food. This is literally what helps us go on. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, and you'll find that if you start going to daily mass and you're taking the Eucharist every day, there's a there's an act- absolute difference there. One, because you're more aware of the sin in your life because you want to be counted as as in, in, in some ways worthy to take it. Um, you want to make sure that you don't go in there sinfully. It's not fun having to cross your arms as you go the line or, or put your fingers to your lips if you want to be as uh, nonchalant as and, possible. And it is, it is so, it does, you do have a sense of shame whenever you remain in the pew as well. Yes. Know, and everyone else is is going up to receive the Lord. It's 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 uh it has a you can feel like a stigma there that you have, you know, not you're no longer in the state you're not in a state of grace. And so at that point you endeavor to do what you can to resolve it, which is usually through the the uh right of confession. When I see someone who is crossing their arms to not receive communion. Like when you do that, you feel like you're being judged. But let's be honest, what you're seeing there is someone who is discerning the body of the Lord. Right. And is really perceiving the radical sanctity of what they're approaching. I have a lot of respect for that person. Yeah. Yes. Because there are so many people who approach the sacrament as though they're just getting a cookie for sitting through mass that long. And that is not what our Lord is there for. That is not a cookie I want to sit through mass for. <laughs> well, yeah, that's the other thing. You, you are not going to communion because that is such a delicious uh, meal that you're getting there. Um, you know, if, if you read in the Bible, you see things like people who are gorging themselves on communion or getting drunk on the communion wine. Uh, we found a way to deal with that, and that's to make it uh, as tasteless a piece of bread as possible. <laughs> and the wine we use usually isn't that great either. <laughs> and even if it's done by intention, like we do in the Maronite Church, it's still, mm-hmm. that's not not a cookie by any means. Right. But it's it's the understanding that we're partaking of our Lord. And in that we become part of the mystical body of Christ. We take his life into us. That that is absolutely what matters there. If if you're going up there for anything other than the most intimate encounter you can possibly have with your Lord and Savior, you're missing the point. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So uh, you know guys, it, we're we're past our two hour mark and we usually try to stay underneath that and um, I'm really impressed that we actually got everything in in about four hours. <laughs> but, 
part one and two. <laughs> but we definitely we're, we definitely want to come back to this and and do deep dives on each one because they deserve it. Like yeah. each one really does. Um, but to give a better overview for those of you that might have some questions about what it is that we believe, obviously that's the whole purpose of this podcast is to try to help you along. Um, and as always, feel free to send any uh, at catholicparadox.com. Um, our website, of course, is open at catholicparadox.com. Um, we have some merch available um, as well on the shop, and feel free to take a look at that stuff. Uh, but guys, did you have any closing remarks? Now, Marcus, I'll let you go first on this. Okay. Um, all I just have to say is, you know, the the Catholic Church is one of, if not the most consistent uh, belief system in the world. Like, we have pretty much everything covered. And, of course, you, if you want to get into the legality of things, there is a section called, of, of study called Canon Law, where there, there's, you know, what, what makes something licit versus valid and so on and so forth. But, you know, a lot of these things have precise definitions. And that doesn't mean that Christianity should be overcomplicated. But what it does mean is that there is a right and wrong way to go about things. And the church has always done its best to maintain consistency over over the centuries and so uh, as we see you know with the sacraments of uh, holy orders as well with the sacrament of marriage and of course the most holy eucharist you know we have a uh, responsibility as catholics to maintain co that consistency as well in our lives and so we we always just need to hope and pray that we can live up to the the standard of the lord that has given us to be perfect as he is perfect of course we are mortal people so we have to always rely on his grace and his help in our lives but uh god bless you all and god bless the united states of america <laughs> marco's running for president here. <laughs> i mean i i probably just want to reiterate something i said last episode that god gives his graces in so many ways but some mm -hmm. of them are so special and because he gave us bodies he wants us to experience and know them with the fullness of the being he gave us because in knowing them we know that christ our god is good and loves us all and wants to spend eternity with us in paradise the one thing i'd like to say is i'd like to invite you all to to become part of our family if you have any questions concerning what it is to be a catholic or how to become a catholic please reach out to us um, we're on Facebook. We're on, our, on CatholicParadox.com. Please reach out to us. We'll help you find a church home. We'll help you find a way to learn more about the Catholic faith, because that's the whole purpose of this. Um, in my former life as a, as a Protestant pastor, I was very, very anti-Catholic. I was very adamantly opposed to everything. Um, one of the reasons why I wanted to do this with, with Marcus and James was because I wanted to correct that. And I wanted to admit that I was wrong. And what better way to do that than to share my, my faith in a very public format. So you're always welcome to come home to Rome. Or if you want to come home to Antioch, that works too. <laughs> um, so hope everybody has a wonderful week. And uh, we look forward to seeing you uh, next time. So thank you.